0: Today, we're going to continue this series that we started a few weeks back called Goodness Gracious. And today, I want us to think a little bit about the circle of life that we all move in. So, in life, we have people, uh, and some of those people nurture empathy and compassion and grace. And in other circles, sometimes there are people that it's all about their pride or their profit or their privilege or their power. And what we find is when you move into the workplace, you will have fellow employees that either nurture empathy and compassion and grace and those type of qualities, or you might have individuals that it's all about themselves all about their profit. It's all about their privileges. It's all about their pride. It's all about gaining the next position. Well, what can be true in the workaday world can also be true in church as well. There is a new podcast series that I just started listening to that was released by Christianity Today that's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. You might not be familiar, but There is a church that started out in Seattle called Mars Hill Church, and in a relatively short period of time, it grew from a handful of people to over 16,000 people that attended the church, and then it planted multiple satellite churches. Now, what's interesting in this podcast is back in 2014, this church suddenly closed its doors. I mean, overnight, everything was shut down, and it followed a number of scandals and allegations from the senior pastor of this particular church who was bullying and spiritually abusing members and other leaders as well. There was a lot of misogyny and homophobia that was going on in this church, and it all of a sudden came to a point where they realized they had crossed the line because they were really not trying to nurture a people-first priority. That's what we want to talk about for a few moments. So we have entered into a circle that uh, we have called the Circle of Tov, which is an Old Testament Hebrew word that means goodness. And we're trying to talk about how do we cultivate goodness among the circles that we run in. And so far, we talked a little bit about nurturing empathy. Last week, we talked a little bit about nurturing grace. Today, I want to talk a little bit about nurturing a people-first priority. Now, if we can drop the stones of accusation that we use to get ahead in this world, and if we can cultivate goodness and use empathy and grace as a foundation Then we can build on that by prioritizing people over other things. When we put people first, though, we will often come in conflict with existing power structures because there's always special interest groups in various circles that you run in, and they don't like the fact that you're putting other people first because it's all about them. Now, what is true in the marketplace? can also be true in church as well. And when empathy and compassion and grace are pushed aside in the interest maybe of a particular theology or a set of standards that enforces compliance uh, and uniformity in all people, uh, then all of a sudden the church has moved from a place of grace to a place that is all about maybe greed or control those type of things, and when the goals of an organization uh, are more important than the needs of people, I think we have entered into the uh, zone of theological malpractice. Now, we can see this around us all the time, but when we personally experience other people depersonalizing us, demoralizing us, or disowning us as the unique people that we are, made in God's image, then we feel maybe like a number. Uh, Old-time rock and roller Bob Seeger used to sing a song, I feel like a number. Uh, I feel like a stranger. And then he says, I got to cruise out of this city and head out to the sea, and I'm going to shout out at the ocean, Lord, it's me. Why do we turn to God? We turn to God because he prioritizes people. And that's what he calls us to be as well, individuals that are people first. You know, the call of Jesus is to love other people well. And sometimes we do that, and sometimes we ignore that. Sometimes it's a convenience, and other times it's an inconvenience. And theological malpractice can be summarized with several common key points that relates to this Mars Hill downfall. Number one, it begins with male-centeredness and often fosters an anti-female attitude. It protects the institution at the expense of people. It protects leaders of the institution at all costs. It sometimes violates human rights, and sometimes it can damage people, even for a lifetime. People sometimes have been so hurt by church that they are not willing to give it Another try. And at the heart, though, of theological malpractice is the failure to treat all people as made in the image of God. So you might have seen on Facebook that Esty and I were at the James Taylor Jackson Brown concert at Blossom last night. And it was packed. I mean, there must have been 50,000, 60,000 people there. And you see all kinds of people coming and going all kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds. But mostly it was a sea of gray hair that was out there last night. The one thing that we had in common was the love of 1970s music, I guess. But every person, whether they were young or old, whether they were black or white, male or female, straight or gay, each one is made in the image of God. There's not one person that was there last night that was not made in the image of God. And when we think about that creation mandate, let us make man, that is mankind, in our image. That includes women and men and girls and boys and toddlers and seniors and teenagers and rich and poor, popular and unpopular, those that are misunderstood, those that are vulnerable those that have different marital status, those that have different nationality or cultural differences. We are all made in the image of God. And that brings us to this story. I read for you a moment ago a story that is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this story is told with a little bit of differences, but the same point is essentially made. Now, one of the things that Jesus was about was being a healer. So if you were alive in A.D. 30 to witness the earthly ministry of Jesus, one of the things that you would notice is his miracles of healing. And he was a preacher, yes. He was a rabbi, yes. He was a sage and a philosopher, yes. But he was a miracle worker, and part of his miracles um, included people of all different backgrounds. But the uniqueness of this passage that I read for you earlier is that it's interesting that in the synagogue, the religious institution of the day, there was a group of people that overlooked this man who had a withered hand. Because, let's face it, you compare a man with a withered hand versus the blind, the lame, those who had leprosy, or some type of demon oppression, even. This seems to be a minor thing, but not to Jesus. What's interesting is that, as he enters into this synagogue on the Sabbath, now remember, the Sabbath is considered to be the day of rest. So in the Old Testament, the Sabbath is given, and it's not Sunday, it's a Saturday in Judaism. It's a day where they stopped work. it's a day that they rested, it's a day that they worship. And what we find is that uh, Everything else was to be pushed to the side for that 24-hour period. But Jesus enters into the synagogue not only to worship God, but he also enters into the synagogue, and it is there that this man who had a shriveled hand, was it arthritis? I don't know. Was it a deformity? I don't know. We're not told. But no matter what it is, he tells this man, To stretch out his hand and he heals this man with the uh, withered hand. Now, when you think about it, couldn't that have waited till tomorrow? All right? So, this doesn't seem to be a life and a death situation. And the religious leaders in Judaism were individuals that wanted to keep the Sabbath holy that is, don't do any work. And obviously, uh, they considered the miracle-working ministry of Jesus to be work. Why would he do this on the Sabbath? Especially in the case of an individual here that could have just waited until tomorrow. But Jesus is sending a message. He's sending a message about prioritizing people over institutions. Prioritizing people over laws. Prioritizing people over standards that are imposed upon other people and enforce. And so he tells this man, stretch out your hand. Now think about the hand for a moment. It's the symbol of power and potential. It's what we reach with. It's what we grasp with. And so if your hand is withered, your power and your potential is withered, there are certain things that you can do and there are certain things you can't do. You see, with a withered hand, There are things that you can't reach for. There's things that you can't hold. There's things that you would love to move, but you can't get a grip on it because your hand will not let you. And so it's interesting that these gospel writers includes this miracle, and this seems to be kind of a minor inconvenience in comparison to other people's medical needs. However, not to Jesus, because in the synagogue, What he is saying is something very important. He is saying that people are prioritized over every other thing. Now, in one of the stories in the Gospel of Matthew, in that account, he says, well, if your ox fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, would you try to get it out? And, of course, the religious leaders would say, yes, of course we'd try to get it out. We wouldn't let it die if it fell into a ditch. And so he begins to say, yeah, see, you have kind of a double standard. You want people to be overlooked, but anything that might have a price tag to it, like a precious piece of livestock, you wouldn't even think twice about saving it. And so the miracle that could have waited till the next day is not just an illustration of the man. It's an illustration of the entire synagogue. They had a withered heart. They had a withered mind. They would not reach out to other people, no matter what the need would be. And so Jesus takes this very simple moment to teach us that God always prioritizes people over anything else. Have you ever noticed that religion has a way of discarding things that matter the most? Isn't it amazing? That religion, I'm not just talking about Christianity, I'm talking about all kinds of world religions, that they will overlook the value of life, they will overlook the value of love, just to keep certain standards, just to keep certain ways of keeping people under control. You see, the Sabbath is part of the symbolism of this miracle. Of course Jesus is going to do this miracle on the Sabbath because he is going to prioritize people over other things. Isn't it amazing that our interpretation in religion or our interpretation of the scriptures can cause our heart to wither and cause our mind to wither? And so what we see here is Jesus setting a course that we are to follow. So how do we do that? How do we put people first? Here's five quick things. Treat people as people. Don't treat people as things. Don't see people as a way to profit or as a way to privilege or even a target to proselytize. Don't look at people that way. All people have names and histories and stories. Value that. Value the fact that every individual is unique. Every individual is made in the image of God. Yes, there are people who've had surgeries and sickness and there are people that are aging. There are people who are rich and there are people who are poor and everything in between. And there are people who are wounded and in need of healing. And there are people who are unemployed and people underemployed, people who need encouragement, some people needing tangible assistance and so forth. The essence of treating people well is summarized by Jesus, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's called the golden rule, okay? So treat other people as people, not as objects. Number two, try to enfold other people into the community. You know, <clears throat> we're coming off a hard time in this pandemic because community in a variety of different ways has been so interrupted. People that we've been connected to for years, all of a sudden we've had to retreat into these enclaves of safety, right? And all of a sudden community begins to splinter and distance begins to occur. And sometimes that's not easy to get back, right? Isn't it amazing that if you've been working from home for over a year, and all of a sudden, you are going to come back into the office. There's been a whole lot of life that has occurred in the last 12 or 14 or 15 months, And where you could pick up the, from the day before with your coworker, you can't do it anymore, right? All of a sudden, it's like getting reacquainted all over again. And so you, it almost has to be intentional to say, let's unfold our stories together into the community experience.) Um, Everyone is living in relationship with someone, somewhere, and relationships are all about belonging. It's all about where we feel valued and where we are celebrated. And the start of building relationships anew can begin with simple things like learning other people's names, hearing again their story, or you sharing your story with them, um... And we've been missing that for months. And so putting people first as a priority is trying to re-engage in community with each other, getting reacquainted in some cases, and then continuing to build upon that. And so it's going to take some time to do that. Um, I think as we come back in person, it's going to take some time for us again to get reacquainted with each other and and, and get Connected from week to week to week. Number three is recognize that all people are made in the image of God. We've already said that, but I think that needs to be reinforced once again. Number four, it's amazing in the New Testament that the Bible talks about us uh, not as acquaintances, but as we are part of God's body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters. And a common word, I guess, that we could use is that we are siblings. We are related to one another in the family of God. Even Paul, when he sent the runaway slave Onesimus back to his owner, Philemon, he told Philemon to no longer consider Onesimus as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. So Paul has this vision uh, that was quite progressive in his day, looking at people. As brothers and sisters in this thing that we call life. And then, last, develop Jesus like eyes for other people. When Jesus looked at people, he saw past their outward appearance, he went straight to the heart. And he took the heart of another person and he put it inside his own soul. And he looked beyond posturing and self protective measures and zeroed in on real needs. And the Gospels often use a word to describe this, compassion, compassion. And so we are to be filled with compassion. And I think people, when they, when they met Jesus, they knew because he showed it to them. His face showed it. His feelings were on his sleeve about how he felt about other people. So we come back as we close this morning, to this story about the man with the withered hand. The man with the withered hand is being restored to potential and possibility. And so we see that God is often stretching to bring us into this experience where uh, we feel his embrace and his love. So what if this withered hand is not just a picture of a Jewish synagogue? What if it's a picture of the American church? What if it's a picture of where the church has gone astray, thinking that it's another big business, thinking that people are just giving machines or used for power and leaders that are using control to make sure that they keep their position? What if we're missing the mark, not seeing the church as a family, not seeing ourselves as brothers and sisters, not seeing that Jesus is reaching out to us sometimes by us reaching out to each other, praying for each other, serving each other, loving each other. Jesus is always inviting us to put people first. And so this means that people are more important than uh, profit or position or privileges or power or even pride. What it does entail is, is starting to those, uh, with those that are closest to us, showing them our heart, giving to them our love, giving to them our service, and letting that have a ripple effect. And I trust that um, you begin just where you are. It can begin with your family, your children, your parents, and you allow it to move into other circles. You are putting other people first when the other person's welfare comes ahead of your own benefit. And so at the end of your journey on this planet, the world will either become more or less kind and compassionate, generous and funny, creative and loving because of your presence in it. And so the mantra that I use is life is a gift, love is the point, and we all must make a choice of if we're going to be a beneficial presence in this world. And here we are, we have this opportunity to reach out our hand, like Jesus did, to the damaged hands. Our hands might be even withered. But as we extend our hands, even with our infirmities, even with our weaknesses, we can engage, even with our imperfections, and show other people that we love them, and we are here for them, we're praying for them, we are serving them. So you remember I began the service with this golf ball, and I said that when you begin a new round of golf, it depends on what your mindset is. So tomorrow night when I tee this ball up, I need to tell myself and remind myself, don't try to kill this ball because it's going to go over into Larry's lair. Don't try to overpower this ball. There's Poses pond that's waiting for this ball, right? But if I can renew my mind, remember the Bible talks about renewing our mind. If I can remove, renew my mind, I can have a mentality, if I can prime my mind to say, just hit it straight. You don't have to kill it. You don't have to outdrive the other three guys that you're golfing with. Try to just kind of reshape your mind and your mentality. And so I think that's what Jesus is doing with us today, is giving us this opportunity to renew our mind. So today, what we're going to do as we close our service is we're going to take communion. We haven't done that in a few weeks. And when we take the bread and we take the cup, we are reminded not only of the life and ministry of Jesus, but also his sacrifice for each and every one of us. The proof of his love is going to the cross of shame and saying to each and every one of us, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. We are the ones that have withered minds. We are the ones that have withered hands. But he continues to reach out to us.